Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayome Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayome Azikawe. Today is uh, Tuesday, uh, February the 6th, 2024, and we're broadcasting from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again uh, to another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal, this special edition uh, of our program. Later on, uh, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the call by some in the United States Senate to place some restrictions on the supply of weapons to the Israeli Defense Forces. Ethiopian Prime Minister Ahmed Abi has attempted to calm concerns regarding relations with neighboring Somalia. Sudan's humanitarian crisis is worsening due to the factional fighting over the last 10 months, and Senegal is postponing its scheduled national elections. In the second hour, we continue our focus on African American History Month with a review of the work of Dr. Chancellor Williams his uh, seminal work, The Destruction of Black Civilization. Finally, we pay tribute uh, to uh, the 79th birthday of uh, Bob Marley. These and other features will be brought to you during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, We'll take our musical interlude uh, in the West African uh, Cape Verde uh, Island Nations with uh, Cesario Evora. Let's listen in. Tardinha na cambar de sol, me na praia de Natasque, lembrando praia de Furna, saudade fronteira. Na cambar de sol Me Na praia de Natasque Lembrando Praia de Furna Saudade Separando pa terra longe, ele tá separando de nós, mãe, nós amigos, sem certeza de tornar a encontrar. Mãe, morada de saudade, ele tá separando. Paterra longe, ele tá separando de nós, mãe, nós amigos, sem certeza de tornar encontrar. 
un pesar Na minha vida me sou Sem ninguém de fé Perto de mim Panto já que as ondas Estás quebrado e mansinho Está trazendo um De sentimento Um pensar Na minha vida me sou Sem ninguém de fé Perto de mim Tanto já que as ondas Estás quebrado e mansinho Está trazendo De sentimento Mas É morada de saudade Ele está separando Para a terra longe Ele está separando De nós mais nós amigos Sem certeza de torna a encontrar Mãe morada de saudade Entra separando para terra longe Entra separando de nós mãe nos amigos sem certeza de torna a encontrar
Continent. Uh, we heard uh, Cesare Ivar uh, from uh, the Cape Verde Islands in West Africa. And then later, uh, we heard uh, from the Fils de Iligadad uh, from Niger, uh, from the album entitled Igas Milan. And finally, uh, Brenda Fosley from the Republic of South Africa uh, with her track entitled Izo. Izo. And uh, this is uh, the Pan African Journal. Special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Tuesday, February the 6th, uh, 2024. And we're broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. Here's uh, some of the headlines in today's uh, Pan-African Newswire. Uh, The Senate Democrats are pushing to prevent the Biden administration uh, from bypassing Congress when approving weapons sales to Israel as the Jewish state continues its war against Hamas under increasing scrutiny. Democratic uh, Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia will be introducing an amendment um, today uh, that, if passed, would strike language in the $118 billion national security supplemental allowing for the administration to send any future arms sales to Israel without first notifying Congress. The larger border legislation is increasingly at risk of dying in the Senate amid bipartisan opposition, making it unlikely that the Israel 
provision will see a vote, uh, yet the push uh, from Kane and the majority of the Senate Democratic Caucus is the latest example of the growing critique uh, from those in President Joe Biden's party regarding his handling of the bloody ongoing war between Israel and Hamas and America's increasing role in it. Uh, Congress and the American people deserve full transparency about uh, military assistance to all nations. Uh, Kane said in a statement to the Associated Press, uh, no president of any party uh, should bypass Congress on issues of war, uh, peace, and diplomacy. The amendment, uh, which has the backing from the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations, uh, Armed Services, and Intelligence Committees, comes after Biden went around lawmakers twice in December to send more than $250 million of weaponry to the state of Israel, bypassing Congress uh, with emergency determinations for arms sales is an unusual step that has in past administrations been met with resistance from lawmakers who normally have a period of at least 15 to 30 days to weigh in on proposed weapons transfers, in some cases even block them. The State Department sought to counter potential criticism of the sales on human rights grounds by saying it was in constant touch with Israel to emphasize the importance of minimizing civilian casualties, which have soared more than 25,000 uh, since Israel began its response uh, to Hamas uh, Al-Aqsa storm uh, that began on October the 7th. In the Horn of Africa state of Ethiopia, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed uh, has played down fears of a war with Somalia over his quest for sea access uh, for his landlocked country, saying earlier today that uh, Ethiopia is only interested in peace with his neighbor. Ethiopia signed a memorandum of understanding with the breakaway region of Somaliland on January the 1st. The document has not been made public, but Somaliland says Ethiopia agreed to recognize its independence in return for a naval port. The deal was, has rattled Somalia, uh, which asserts that Somaliland is part of Somalia. Somalia's president has suggested he is ready to go to war with Ethiopia to prevent it from building a port there. Addressing lawmakers earlier today, Abi said he had no intention of going to war with Somalia. To ensure the peace of Somalia, thousands of Ethiopians have died in Somalia, he said. A reference to Ethiopia's troops' contributions to the African Union peacekeeping mission fighting the extremist group Al-Shabaab in Somalia. We are dying in Somalia because the peace of Somalia is the peace of Ethiopia. The development of Somalia is the development of our country. We believe we are brothers. Abi said that we don't want to fight. We want to see a strong and prosperous Somalia that is a market for Ethiopian goods. Abi also sought to allay fears, Egyptian fears, over the huge hydroelectric dam Ethiopia is building on the Blue Nile. We will share our resources even in the future, but my hope is I expect them to accommodate our request as well, Abi said. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In other news, 13 children are dying each day of severe malnutrition at the Zamzam camp in Sudan's northern Darfur as a consequence of the 10-month war in their country, a medical charity said yesterday. The head of the United Nations Refugee Agency, meanwhile, warned 
that Europe may have to deal with a rise in the number of Sudanese refugees if a ceasefire agreement isn't signed soon between Sudan's warring sides and relief efforts aren't strengthened. One child is dying every two hours in the camps, according to Clara Nuffalet, head of the emergency response in Sudan for Doctors Without Borders or Médecins Sans Frontières, MSF. Those with severe malnutrition uh, who have not yet died are at high risk of dying within three to six weeks if they do not get treatment, Nicolette said. MSF says that Zamzam, a camp of more than 300,000 people, was originally formed by people fleeing ethnically targeted violence in the region in 2003. However, since war broke out between Sudan's military and paramilitary forces in April uh, 2023, camp residents have been cut off from vital humanitarian aid and medical care, the group said in a statement. UN agencies and international aid organizations evacuated North Darfur after the war began in April and have maintained only a limited presence since then, the Médecins Sans Frontières has said. And finally, Senegal's parliament voted yesterday to delay the West African nation's presidential election until December the 15th in a chaotic voting process that took place after opposition lawmakers were forcefully removed from the chambers as they debated President Macky Sall's earlier decision to delay the crucial election. Security forces stormed the legislative building and forcefully removed several opposition lawmakers who were trying to block the voting process on the unprecedented delay of the presidential election initially scheduled for February the 25th. The adopted bill extends Sall's tenure which was due to end on April 2nd until a new election. Authorities on Monday restricted uh, mobile Internet access amid growing protests by opposition supporters against uh, the delay. As the lawmakers debated the bill, security forces fired tear gas at protesters gathered outside the legislative building. Many of the protesters were arrested as they poured into the streets of the capital, Darfur, burning tires and criticizing the country's leader. On Monday, Two opposition parties filed a court petition challenging the election delay. It was not clear what will become of their request for Senegal's Constitutional Council to direct the continuation of the electoral process. And uh, with that, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding uh, this segment of our program, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the more pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week. I was 
of uh, Tina Turner uh, with the track entitled River Deep, uh, Water High. And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for today, Tuesday, February the 6th, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We're going to listen in regard to our African American History Month uh, programming for February. 
Uh, this is a uh, interview uh, with uh, Dr. Chancellor Williams. Let's listen in. What role did religion play in the conquest of Africa? Well, it played it played a key role because it came in with the brotherhood, and the African believed in brotherhood. It came in the one world idea, one great brotherhood. And of course, this uh, uh, this although there were some states uh, that resisted this all through it for a long time. And for example, remember the eternal martyrs. You never forget them. Because when you you can't generalize for the continent, you see. Because we're not talking about one nation. We're talking about a continent of people, you see. Have to keep that in mind every minute when you're talking about Africa. That you're not, you're talking about a continent, and we generally talk as though we're talking about one nation. We're talking about a continent made up of many nations. Okay, there were those who who saw through the trick of religion as it was presented by both Islam and Christianity and resisted both. The Marxist state was a great example of this. And there were others who resisted for a while but eventually gave in because trade was a great attraction. Say, okay, you want to let us in? Well, can you let us trade around your borders here? And they established trading force all around your borders. And gradually, gradually, you got in. But surely you let the Christians come in with this. They just want to preach to you about the same God that you believe in. Just want to show you there's one God of all. But it was all trickery. Finally, this one. Finally, this one. But it was all trickery. Yes, it turned out to be nothing but trickery. Now, I would not say that uh, this was a grand design of trickery. They just saw there was the, the traitors were shrewd enough to see. The explorers, the conquerors, were shrewd enough to see. That if they carried the missionaries in, they wouldn't have to go in and fight it. Missionaries in trade as the first bait would make their pathway easier. I would call it, uh, and have called it, uh, the blacks' uh, naivety, uh, the blacks' uh, gullibility, uh, the b blacks' over uh, quest for brotherhood, for as I pointed out in a number of places, we were always the brotherhood seekers. We were always the brotherhood seekers. And this has been our main downfall. It was never the reverse. The whites owned the sought brotherhood or pretended brotherhood, or the Asians owned the pretended brotherhood. And when they saw an advantage of economic and political rule, as the ultimate outcome. Why is it that you always hear about European invasion of Africa, but very little about the Asian and the other groups that you mentioned? Because the Europeans were the last. Colonialism is up and within our mind. Colonialism has just been, uh, just been that is, uh, political colonialism, I put it that way, has just been destroyed. Economic colonialism still persists in Africa. 
So the European hold on Africa was politically broken when they began to become free and set up their own government. However, as I also point out uh, in my writing, that Africa is only uh, half free, and I would hardly call it half free, when it's only politically free. It will not be free until it's economically free. So long as the economy is still under the control of foreigners, then its government is under the control of foreigners. It was unfortunate that uh, uh, blacks in the United States are still, like their African brothers, absorbed with the idea that politics is their salvation. Politics is not the salvation of the blacks. Politics is only one aspect. Without the other, you're nothing, and that is economic power. Economic power controls the politician. The politician acts and is controlled by the economic power of this nation, of any nation. That's where, that's where the power lies. How did slavery come to be restricted to blacks? Well, this is a, a, called a sort of lengthy explanation, but as brief as I can put it, this is, the system was, uh, for example, let's take the, uh, the, the first uh, widespread enslaved of the Arabs. They had a patrilineal system. Uh, they, uh, they, they, their offspring by black women were uh, belonged to the father belonged to the father uh, uh, they were generally free they were generally free now this is a very important point because it became a universal pattern the free of the offspring of non-african by african women whether they were asian or european white they were generally free or given a, a highly preferential status in jobs, in education, and so forth and so forth. Uh, and slavery, uh, after the uh, a great white slave rebellion, uh, became, uh, as is generally known, there was a time when everybody was Slave. slave, slavery meant no more than political prisoners. I think that's generally known. To, to be a slave in the ancient world uh, had no racial uh, connotation at all, no racial significance at all. It just meant that whoever was victorious or had slaves, this was a pattern. And they knew very well that they were enslaving scholars and uh, uh, scientists and what have you. They knew that fact as they saw it uh, out. The scholars and the scientists they took care that they were not killed or hurt. Harm because they wanted to use them in in the home country. Okay, so, so slavery didn't carry any any taint other than that would be carried by our present day POW, Crimson War. That's all it was. But now a, a, a change took place after the white slave revolt. After the white slave revolt that murdered so many of the slave masters. Uh, then slavery was discontinued among whites and, uh, and concentrated upon the uh, upon the blacks. Uh, thereafter, no no white slavery among 
or these other people died out. Now, since they were not enslaving the, uh, they were not enslaving uh, those people who were of lighter hue by reason of their uh, either Asian or Caucasian blood. Uh, they were concentrating on those with blacker skin. Therefore, uh, not only was slavery uh, limited to the blacks as a race, but it was limited to the blackest of the blacks, which is the reason why uh, the word black itself became a, a, a symbol of bad luck. Because it weren't going to bother you if, if you if you were light. You took a better chance of being free. You had a better chance of being free than if you were black. If you were black, you were subject to be seized. Therefore, it was bad luck to be black. And this is one of the reasons of, of, for that. So, in addition to the uh, facts uh, mentioned with respect to the enslavement of the, the blacks along color line. I think it should be pointed out that the circumstances of conquest of the continent in which the uh, invaders had the opportunity uh, to make uh, millions and millions of dollars in the slave trade uh, together with the exploitation of the mineral wealth of the continent, also together with the divisionism they were able to uh, perpetuate among the blacks uh, in creating strife among the various language groups. All of this uh, made the blacks uh, easy pray to conquest. Finally, in addition to the other facts mentioned in connection with the previous discussion, uh, our willingness to uh, uh, drive for brotherhood and our easy acceptance of the foreigner's hand and his expression of goodwill. So we became the victim of our own gullibility in a very, very real sense. Specifically, how did Europeans and other groups go about wiping out the contributions of blacks? Two or three things that you could mention. Well, we've already mentioned the system of, of, of uh, of, uh, of how this is uh, done. They simply would take uh, the achievements of the, of the blacks and claim it as their own, uh, all uh, without mentioning the source of their uh, new ideas or their what they call new, in quote, uh, discovery or invention things which they had remodeled, they simply would uh, present it as their own creation. In your book, you talked about how I think the Europeans, if I'm correct, um, would knock off the nose, the African features of uh, statues. What about this whole thing? 
Well, of course, there had been uh, there had been uh, uh, a system, a classical, what they call the classical style, uh, over several thousand years of painting, where it was uh, uh, not regarded as proper to uh, either call, paint, or draw an individual as he really was. Uh, you used uh, a form uh, that you regarded as idealistic, a, a representation of him which was not supposed to be uh, the true representation. The true representation was always regarded as vulgar. Uh, so, and this this was a, a, a practice, by the way, in in Europe also for uh, a long time. Where they, they, in any number of cases, where they call the, the uh, that which was uh, common, uh, like the common language of people, was regarded as vulgar. So you have to use something classical, like Latin, to be respectful. So it was in the drawing and, and such like things in uh, in Africa. Therefore, uh, when uh, Kufu uh, had his picture. Uh, his his uh, his actual uh, statue in the Sphinx uh, caused in his true likeness, his true African likeness, broad nose, lips, and all. This was revolutionary because this wasn't done. He was supposed to, uh, according to the classical tradition, he was supposed to have sharp nose, not a flat nose. Once again, who was this? Kufu. Uh-huh. Uh, he was supposed to have. Uh, he was supposed to have uh, uh, a, a brownish uh, type of uh, skin and so forth and so on uh, features, or whatever it was the classical style for the period, and not the, the natural. Now, this shouldn't be shocking if you know the history of Europe or the history of other countries. What was classical and what was regarded as vulgar. So, so but now we we. Uh, look at pictures of the Egyptian pictures now, or pictures of early Africans even. even. And they, they don't look like the actual Africans in many cases, except when they want to uh, present them as uh, slaves or something of that kind. Okay. As you look at African history, do you see any parallels between that history and the condition of blacks in the United States? Uh, do you see any parallels between uh, the history, the African history, and the condition of blacks in the United States? Well, it's the same thing. It's, uh, I might as a sort of uh, uh, amendment to the question of uh, of slavery, uh, uh, why the, 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 the whole continent was uh, overrun, and uh, where the whites uh, rose to a handful by comparison to the total population. Uh, could uh, uh, could capture and, and control so many uh, uh, millions of, uh, of, of blacks. It is due to disunity. It is due to fragmentation. It is due to the fact that they each wanted his own little uh, kingdom, his own little uh, chiefdom, uh, his own little state, and would not uh, cooperate, would not unite uh, for defense voluntarily even in the face of danger uh, among themselves. 
So you, you, you have the same parallel in the United States. Blacks today are confronted with uh, uh, a real peril. We're in a state of crisis, but don't know it. We are actually in a state of crisis. Our very existence as a people is being threatened on many fronts. And we are dancing along just as though nothing has happened. We refuse to organize. Uh, we, we do not have the, the, the will or the intelligence to organize even as we did on the Garvey. Remember the Garvey, a man coming in from another uh, land, you might say, Marcus Garvey. You may say, yes, Marcus Garvey organized a half of the race in a few years. There were six million blacks in one battle in a few years. We haven't done anything near like it since. Now, we, we, so, we're, so we're backwards. We're acting backwards. And uh, this, is, this is not a good picture. So that the same thing, then, is, is the same picture in Africa. Lack of unity. And this is the real answer to the question of why we were successful in slaves. It's the big answer. A lack of unity. A lack of brotherhood among ourselves. Ready for brotherhood with all other people, just as in this country we are ready for integration with, with the whites or anybody else, third world, anybody else, but we're not ready for integration with ourselves, which is the first step for progress. We've got to integrate among ourselves first before we can be prepared to stand as men and women and deal with the rest of the world as equals. But we don't seem to be willing to do that. And this, the parallel in Africa and, and, in, and, and in the United States and in, and in the islands, wherever blacks are found, you find the same situation which led to our ultimate destruction and our ultimate enslavement. A refusal to unite among ourselves, but a drive to unite with other people who would welcome our unification so that they could use us to further their own end, which would mean ultimate conquest, ultimate superiority ultimate world domination. Why do you think many blacks are less inclined to unite than whites are? Well, they are less inclined to unite, I believe, for the same reason that we have been uh, discussing in, uh, previously. That is to say, uh, we are trained to think against ourselves. We are anti-us. Uh, we do not have the same respect for, by and large, this is true, for our own people as we do for other people. Uh, and you see, uh, you begin by loving yourself, your own race first. Yeah, you put a high value on your own. Well, the reason for this is we've already mentioned. Uh, we were cut off from and are still generally absolutely ignorant of our own cultural tradition, of the great men and women of our own bloodline who have made contributions to the history of mankind 
and to the creation and advance of civilization unexcelled by any other people. But do we know them? No, we don't know them. Hence, we imitate and try to unite with the people about whose achievements we know. We know about the great women of the white world, for example. We know about Catherine the Great of Russia. We know about Elizabeth I of England. We know about Queen Victoria. You even named the biggest inland water in Africa after her, Lake Victoria. We know about them. But ask any black child, or any black teacher for that matter, what do they know about Queen Candace? Do they know anything about Anne and Zinger? And so on down the line. And about the great men and women of our race as a whole. This is, this is the crux of the matter. So that not having this cultural background, which is you are devoted with pride to your own race because you, like all other people, can trace your bloodline not through their cultural tradition, not through their Napoleon Washingtons and so forth, but through your own race. And this is why knowing about the history of your race is different from any other subject matter, you see. This is why the whites put so much emphasis on history. It's not history per se. It's keeping in touch with and making sure that that children and that children's children know what their heritage is, which is another way of saying what their birthright is. What does that claim to civilization? What does that claim to equality among mankind? This is that charter. The charter is a knowledge of your own cultural tradition. And we don't have this. And this explains all of our uh, peculiar behavior, our anti-Earth, our failures to, uh, to unite. This is why you'll say, you'll hear some of our most eminent so-called leaders say that no matter if you have a school in an all-black community with all the modern facilities, no matter if all the teachers are drawn from the greatest universities on earth. If they're all black, no good. It must be integrated. You must have busting to get them somewhere to mix them in with white. You have to have a balanced situation. What caused this sort of idiocy? But a lack of faith in your own. And feeling this way, in all totally black situations, the idea is an expectation is that your standards must go down. Don't talk about high standards of efficiency and that sort of stuff. No, you're supposed to bring it down because we're not supposed to be 100% efficient and so forth. Like other people, unless we are among or integrated with them. This is the answer. In the chapter, The Black World at the Crossroads, you say the Negro leaders who spearhead and carry on the campaign for integration, not only do not know the great heritage of the blacks, they do not want to know it. Yes, that's, that's uh, the reason is quite clear from what I've just said. They don't want to know it because uh, they feel comfortable with their own training. They've been trained. You see, this didn't happen overnight. This started in the primary grade. When you open your little primer, all you saw was beautiful little white children with uh, uh, 
rosy cheeks and brown hair and so forth, rolling hooks and so forth. And right on up, you didn't see anything that reflected you. So right on up, through, out. Right on through college, through graduate school, through medical school, you didn't come in contact unless you went to some extra effort outside of the school curriculum. And this your own race, and this is the reason. This is the reason. In the same chapter, you write about capitalistic democracy and communism. You say that communism, nor capitalism, is the real issue in the Cold War, but that, in fact, the Cold War is a contest between two of the strongest white powers for world domination. What do you mean here? Well, I mean just that. I don't need to elaborate on that. I mean just that. Nothing less, nothing more. It's a struggle of Russia, uh, as it did, was under the czar for expansion of the Rus Russian Empire over the world, just as it was under the czar. Simply took it up under different names and a different crusade now. Uh, Amer uh, American capitalism, assuming to take the leadership of the so-called free world, is determined to see that its system prevail. And so that it's, uh, it's a matter of who can influence the most people in order that to see which of the great powers will either dominate the world or have the greatest share in the power in world domination. This is what it is. And, of course, uh, you could write a book breaking it down into detail analysis, but this is what it is. The United States doesn't care anything about a country being communist. So we pull as many billions of dollars into Yugoslavia and into Romania and Romania and other countries as we would in uh, any, any, any other so-called democratic country. Why? Trying to get them not to be overly devoted to, to Russia. They don't care anything. You actually didn't care anything about these countries being uh, same things in, in the case of Poland. American dollars, our dollars, we, the people, because that's what it is. You're talking about American dollars. You're talking about what we taxpayers pay. Going to these various communist countries, now, we were really anti-communist. That wouldn't happen. So I don't need to go into any detailed elaboration. What I'm saying is rather obvious if you just think about it a moment. Welcome back. And that was an interview uh, with uh, Dr. Chancellor Williams uh, Dunn uh, in 1978. And to give you some background on uh, Dr. Chancellor Williams, he was born on December 22nd of 1893. He made his transition on December 7th of 1992. He was an African-American sociologist, historian, and writer. He is noted uh, for his work on African civilizations prior to encounters with Europeans. Its major work uh, was the destruction of black civilization, published uh, in 1974. Uh, Williams uh, was born on December 22nd of 1893 in Bennettsville, South Carolina. As the last of five children, his father had been born into enslavement and had grown up uh, to gain freedom uh, and voting after the American Civil War. His mother, Dorothy Ann Williams, worked as a cook, nurse, and evangelist. The family suffered after Democrats regained power in the state legislative apparatus in the late 19th century and passed bills disenfranchising African-American citizens. 
as well as imposing racial segregation and white supremacy under the Jim Crow system. Williams' innate curiosity about racial inequality, cultural struggles, particularly those of African Americans, began as early as his fifth grade year. Encouraged by a sixth grade teacher, he sold the crisis published by the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP, and the Norfolk uh, Journal and Guide as well, reading them and using their recommendation, recommended books to direct their studies. Years later, he was quoted in an interview as saying, I was very sensitive about the position of black people in the town. I want to know how you explain this great difference. How is it that we were in such low circumstances as compared to the whites? And when they answered slavery as the explanation that I wanted to know where we came from as part of the great migration out of the real South, the Williams family moved to Washington, D.C. in 1910. His father hoped for more opportunity there, especially in education, and Williams graduated from Armstrong Technical High School. Williams' mother died in 1925, leaving his father as a widower. All their children were grown uh, by then. After working for a while, Williams entered college at Howard University, a historically black college. He earned an undergraduate degree in education in 1930, followed by a master's degree in history in 1935. After completing a doctoral dissertation on socioeconomic significance of the storefront church movement in the United States since 1920, he was awarded a Ph.D. in sociology by American University in 1949. Williams began his studies abroad in England as a visiting professor to the universities of Oxford and London in 1953 and 1954. In 1956, he did field research uh, in African history at Ghana's University College. At that time, his focus was on African achievements and the many self-ruling civilizations that had arisen and operated on the continent long before the coming of Europeans or East Asians. His last study, completed in 1964, covered 26 countries and more than 100 language groupings. In 1935, Williams started as administrative principal for the Shettleham School for Boys in Maryland. Four years later, he became a teacher in Washington, D.C.'s public schools. With World War II imminent, he entered the civil service system in the federal government in 1941, serving as section chief of the Census Bureau, a statistician for War Relocation Board, and an economist in the Office of Price Administration. In 1946, he returned to his alma mater, Howard University, as a social science instructor, teaching until 1952. He transferred to the history department. By the 1960s, he was lecturing and writing about African history from a position uh, of authority. He concerned, he concentrated and concerned uh, on African civilizations before the European encounter and was one of the group of scholars who asserted that Egypt had been a black civilization. He was a scholar at Howard until his retirement in 1966. Afterwards, he continued his studies and writing. Uh, in 1971 and 1974, Williams published his major work, The Destruction of Black Civilization, Great Issues of a Race Between 4500 B.C. and 2000 A.D. The following year, the book received an award from the Black Academy of Arts and Letters, founded in New York in 1969. 
he asserted the validity of the black Egyptian hypothesis and that ancient Egypt was predominantly a black civilization, which was accepted by most scholars and rejected by some participants. William's central thesis is that Egypt, particularly Upper Egypt, constituted the northern boundary of a larger Ethiopian empire rooted in Napata and Karma. Further, Williams asserted the King Namir unified Upper and Lower Egypt by compelling political unity among Asiatics, then residents in the Nile Valley, Nile Delta. He further asserts in Chapter 3, Egypt, the rise and fall of black civilization, that the name Egyptian becomes a referent to the children of Africans and Asians who reside throughout the country rather than to either Africans or Asiatics residing at the respective ends of the Nile Valley and beyond. At the UNESCO Symposium on Peopling of Ancient Egypt and the Deciphering of the Meroic Mar- Script in Cairo in 1974, mainstream scholars have abandoned the notion that traditional racial categories can be applied to ancient Egypt. They maintain that despite the phenotypic diversity of ancient and present-day Egyptians, applying modern notions of black and white races to ancient Egypt is anachronistic. In addition, scholars reject the notion implicit in the notion of a black or white Egyptian hypothesis that ancient Egypt was racially homogeneous. Instead, skin color varied between the peoples of Lower Egypt and Upper Egypt and Nubia, who in various eras rose uh, to power in ancient Egypt. Within Egyptian history, despite multiple foreign invasions, the demographics were not shifted substantially by large migrations. Although various scholars have argued that the origins of the Egyptian civilization derive from communities which emerged in both Saharan and Sudanese regions of the Nile Valley. Williams uh, died of respiratory failure on December 7th of 1992. He was 98 years old. He passed away at the Providence Hospital in Washington, D.C. He had been a resident of the D.C. Center for Aging Services for several years. He was survived by his wife of 65 years, Maddie Williams, of Washington, and 14 children, 36 grandchildren, 38 great-grandchildren, and 10 great-great-grandchildren. And that was uh, some biographical information uh, on uh, Dr. Chancellor Williams. We're going to listen to another interview uh, that was uh, done by Detroit's own Tony Brown uh, during his uh, period as host of Tony Brown's Journal over PBS. Let's listen uh, to uh, this additional interview uh, with Dr. Chancellor Williams. They say blacks hate blacks. It's not just a myth. Why is it? We do not have the same respect for members of our race as we do for some other species of white race. And that we were told, quite to the contrary, that we were from a land of savages, of cannibals. And except by the grace of God and the white man, we would have been a lost people. So we should be on our knees forever praying and thanking God that we were brought even in slavery to this land to escape the horrors of Africa. And this was brought in and drilled into us generation after generation. 
the second largest continent is an area of almost 12 million square miles in size. It is comprised of 50 independent countries and populated by over 537 million people who speak over 1,000 languages and dialects. For eons, Africa's wealth has been a magnet that has attracted the entire world. The continent has been plundered for its vast mineral and human resources. Traditional historians have viewed this land as one of primitive savages who slept through the millennia, contributing little to the cultural legacy of mankind. The facts, however, tell a different story. Scholars and scientists now concede that Africa is the birthplace of mankind. Africans were the first builders of civilization. They discovered mathematics, invented writing, developed sciences, engineering, medicine, religion, fine arts, and built the Great Pyramids, an architectural achievement which still baffles modern science. What caused the cradle of the world's oldest and greatest civilizations to crumble, leaving in its wake a people who are exploited, oppressed, and economically underprivileged? In a moment, Africa's downfall. Tony Brown's Journal is brought to you by Pepsi-Cola Company and your local Pepsi bottlers. Dr. Williams, it's an honor being able to, to meet with you and to talk with you. You have written what many of us consider to be the definitive work about the culture of Africans uh, throughout the world, and you approach it from the standpoint of the destruction of that civilization. Why did you choose the aspect of destruction rather than uh, some other point of view? The aspect of destruction was emphasized for the reason that it was quite clear that the black people in America seemed to be generally unaware that they had a history that they were told that they had achieved nothing. They were told... This man says the true facts are to be found in a more thorough and honest look at history. After Dr. Chancellor Williams, a native of Bennettsville, South Carolina, received his doctorate in history and sociology, he studied psychology, anthropology, archaeology, and economics. He also taught Arabic history and worked as a professor of history at Howard University for 29 years. He won an award from the Black Academy of Arts and Letters and was the first recipient of the 21st Century Foundation's Clarence L. Holt Prize for Excellence in Literature. Now, of course, the record uh, was there to show that much of Western civilization was built upon the foundation of the land where civilization itself had begun. And this was in Africa. Therefore, uh, the focus had to be on Africa to see to what extent uh, the re recent revelations with the turn of the uh, century, at the turn of the century, that Africa was the cradle of civilization. To what extent could this be actually verified? And so my work was directed in the uncovering uh, much of what had been lost, much of what had been disguised, 
much of what had been uh, stolen, refurbished, reworked, and presented to Western civilization as the work brought from Africa, but presented to Western civilization as the creation of Western man. Dr. Chancellor Williams spent 16 years writing his book, and although a piece of extraordinary research, he considered it a greater miracle that he was able to get it published. Plagued by a chronic lack of funds and turned down by his academic associates and all other sources, Dr. Williams mortgaged his home. Then another obstacle arose. Due to his rapidly failing eyesight, he was forced to abandon his earlier plans for an expanded three-volume work and had to settle for a condensed version of his research into a single volume, the book we now know as The Destruction of Black Civilization, Great Issues of a Race, from 4,500 B.C. to 2,000 A.D. What did you find out about ancient African civilizations? Well, to begin with, I found out that uh, ancient African civilization was, first of all, the beginning of civilization. I found out that there could be no uh, record found anywhere that antedates the advanced civilization of Africa. And this was the finding of uh, European and other scholars. Uh, and they were now gradually admitting it. And when the evidence became overwhelming, the question arose, could Africans have achieved all this? Could Africans have achieved this remarkable uh, work in architecture that could be traced back for thousands of years before Christ, uh, before Western civilization had even started. Could Africans have done this? Could Africans have achieved this high advance in mathematics, in physics, in chemistry, in medicine, and so forth? I mean, many of the things we now glorify as modern. Uh, Tick the Washington Monument, for example, which is an exact uh, duplication of uh, ancient Af African architecture, which is so uh, well known. And the, most of the columns we see on these stately columns on buildings, which, which the Greeks, in studying in Africa, are borrowed from uh, the, the, the Africans, Remodeled them at, at uh, Doria, at Corinth, and so forth. Gave these columns the name of the city in which they remodeled them and uh, gave them a Greek character. They really didn't do much changing. They merely removed the African acanthus leaf at the column and uh, uh, modified, but otherwise it, it was uh, substantially the same as African. Dr. Williams, uh were there ever laws uh, and rules that governed the entire continent of Africa? There, there were laws and rules that governed the entire continent in the same sense that you have uh, the same uh, system of laws and rules that... Uh, which uh, 
uh, govern uh, a whole people without the same time having a single government, a single state spreading over a whole continent, the second largest in the world. In other words, I'm saying that uh, while Africa, in contradistinction to being a country, was the second largest co uh, continent on earth, uh, and while the African people at one time in history uh, occupied the whole continent, and while, uh, while they were one people in their general culture, in their general uh, religion, with certain modification, in their general social laws, in their general uh, legal system, right on down the line, in almost every avenue you could find, you could find that there was a, this kinship. The only thing that they fundamentally different, uh, or where they fundamentally differed, was where, of course, when, when they divided up and formed separate states, or withdrew, or to form separate societies, and develop uh, different languages uh, from, the, uh, from the segmentation or, or separation from what had been uh, a larger language group. Uh, so that uh, the, you, there's, no, there's no problem at all in understanding that you had one people uh, occupying the continent without being under one single state. Dr. Williams, based on your research of history, is it accurate that democracy was born in Greece? No, democracy was not born in any one place. Uh, the record, as I indicate in this discussion on the chapter uh, dealing with the, the African Constitution, uh, birth of democracy, and birth of democracy in Africa. Uh, I made it quite clear that uh, uh, democracy was a system that was natural among uh, the ancient peoples uh, in all stages of development, even even the most primitive societies, had their chiefs generally elected, and the the chiefs were generally uh, subject to the will of the group. Uh, so it was nothing unusual about the uh, the uh, the head of the society uh, being subject to the will of the tribe, uh, which was one of the uh, early forms of, of social organization. Uh, the, 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 the family, the clan, the tribe, the nation is a progressive step. So that uh, in Africa, you will find that uh, back to t from times immemorial, uh, they had this their own system of democracy, and it was this same system 
which could be found in every part of the African continent. The same fundamental laws, the same fundamental custom, no matter whether they were 5,000 miles apart, no matter whether the, the group had never come across the other group, they had the same system. That's why we know that they, we were dealing with substantially one people. So, so this, that, that democracy then was so long, so many thousands of years before Greece, that the mention of Greece in connection with where democracy began could only bring smiles to the <laughs> face of any scholar who has really studied world history. What were some of the specific African cultures, civilizations? These uh, civilizations, uh, I refer to them, of course, generally as uh, the great kingdoms and the great uh, or the empires uh, that existed uh, uh, all over the, the continent of Africa. Uh, to the south, perhaps the, the greatest, uh, at least one of the greatest, was the, the empire of uh, uh, Monomotapa, uh, of which uh, the president Zimbabwe is, uh, is a part of the, what was once a, a much larger empire. And then, of course, uh, the, those uh, empires of Mali and of, uh, of uh, Ghana, ancient Ghana, and of Songhai, and of the, of the Masi uh, uh, states, and uh, uh, so on. Uh, yet many of the, uh, these uh, countries had started in a period long before Christ was born. Ghana, for example, was, uh, had uh, for over 400 kings listed before Christ was born. So, so that uh, uh, these were uh, ancient uh, empires. The, the most important thing here, though, to note about these empires and our uh, last name is that all the, all the, the, the people in, uh, in America, all the blacks or Africans in, in America, came from this, uh, this, this area of great nations, of a great educational system, where the greatest university of the time in which these, these slaves were being brought to America still was flourishing in its glory. That is, of course, the University of Sankor. Uh, the great civilizations in Nigeria, all of these were advanced cultures. So these people didn't come as they were told and, and came to believe uh, after uh, they were, uh, had lost memory of, uh, of, of their, their homeland by the system of not allowing uh, people of the same language group to be sold to the same plantation, but scattering them uh, all over the South so that they, they, you wouldn't form a power, power base by having a, a lot of uh, Africans speaking the same language. So this helped to, to uh, by this breakdown of intercommunication among themselves, help to them to uh, lose memory. But we were told, quite to the contrary, that we were from a land of savages, of cannibals. And except by the grace of God and the white man, we would have been a lost people. So we should be on our knees forever praying and thanking God that we were brought, even in slavery, to this land to escape the horrors of Africa. And this was brought in and drilled into us generation after generation. 
until even today, after going through from the uh, kindergarten through graduate school, the majority of blacks today uh, reject the idea of being called an Afro-American. Dr. Williams, if all of the things you say are true, if uh, uh, Africans had such advanced civilizations, uh, hundreds of, of kings and, and, and one uh, uh, African kings in one kingdom before Jesus Christ was born, how did Africans worldwide and Afro-Americans get in the shape they're in? How did these great kingdoms, this great civilization, fall to civilizations that were, didn't come along until thousands of years after theirs was, were already established? Well, it wasn't, it wasn't done overnight. Their great empires were built uh, through their industry, through their enterprising, through their uh, industry in so many fields. And the whole societies, as I point out in the book, in practice all of them, were organized in lodges. That is, this is where the, the organization of, uh, of uh, workers, but they, they, they regard themselves as, as uh, uh, craftsmen. And each, 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 each working group, whether it's building boats, or whether they were stone masons or brick masons, or whether they were carpenters or whatnot, each craft was organized into a lodge. In fact, the educational system was similarly organized on, 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 on a, a basis of three levels. And so you had, uh, a, a society that went in for production. The people who, who were specialized in growing rice or cotton or peppers or what have you did so not as Africans do today. Africans hardly, you hardly get Africans generally today to go beyond a subsistence level. Just enough for themselves. Though they're scared to build a, produce a surplus for export and to sell to areas which do not produce the same things which they, which they produce and buy from the other people the things which the other people produce and which they don't have, which is trade, which is progress, which is the basis of wealth worldwide. See, what they're talking about, Reaganism and that sort of stuff, there isn't anything new that happened with doing that ten, tens of thousands of years ago, a system of life. So they had regular trading posts establishing different villages in other countries. They had trading routes that crossed the Sahara into other lands with merchandise, camels loaded with merchandise or spices, whatever the people produced. They were an industrial people. And they uh, sold and they would import as well as export. And th this, is what the, this is what made them great. I try to emphasize that they, when you talk about the great African empire, they didn't just become great Overnight, just great. No, they became great by doing specific things. They were great people. They were industrious people. They were builders. They were producers. The whole nation was fired to, to produce, and they were rewarded for their work. And so they, they built cities and so forth and so forth. And so this is why you had this, this great uh, 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 system of nation uh, building, becoming so mighty. Now, how did the, why did they fall? 
they fell when these when when this began to decline internally, and when the forces, the external uh, forces, over centuries of effort, finally gained the day. These nations had lost strict laws, barring foreigners from coming to the interior. Then the same system of gradually settling around the borders, that is foreign traders, and uh, supposed to be traders, but most of them were uh, uh, geographers and others representing foreign, would, uh, would establish little trading posts, just ask the permission to establish trading posts on the border. We don't want to come in, we don't come in, you can, we just want to do business with you. We want to sell you what we have, we want to buy some of what you have. Well, the Africans are great traders, always great traders. So that was one of the, the weaknesses. They allowed them to settle along the borders, for one thing. The second thing that happened, and this went on, as I point out in the destruction, for several thousand years before uh, the, the certain countries were finally uh, taken. And when they were taken, like Egypt, look how many times Egypt was taken and retaken. You say blacks gave up Egypt. Are you saying... The Egyptians were black? Of course the Egyptians were black. The name comes from the, 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 the name itself. It has an origin in the, in the, the, uh, the, the name of a black king. So that uh, it became, uh, the Egyptians were black <laughs> until it became otherwise. Uh, they're not uh, black today. And uh, they're, they're just like the uh, those who occupy... Uh, the northern part of the Sudan uh, are not uh, black today. They are uh, 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 partly uh, partly Arab, uh, mostly Arab, and uh, uh, some of them are mixed. Afro, the Afro-Arabs, you might call them. You spend quite a bit of, uh, of time in your book describing the ancient civilization of Ethiopia. What is it you find important about that civilization? Well, the ancient civilization of Ethiopia was the, 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 uh, the civilization of what we're now talking about when we talk about that whole stretch of land from the Mediterranean uh, to the source of the Nile, which was ancient Ethiopia. So Egypt was nothing but uh, what we call Egypt now, which was Chim, uh, before the name was changed, uh, was nothing but the, a northern province of the Ethiopian Empire. You have a chapter here, Ethiopia's oldest daughter, Egypt. And I'd like to read you a statement you made and get you to comment on it. You say, the melting pot of the races began around the northern perimeter. The end result was always the same. The blacks were pushed to the bottom of the social, economical, and political ladder whenever and wherever the Asians and their mulatto offsprings gained control. Why is that? Why? Why, with this advanced African civilization, when they interfaced with, with members of other groups, why did the members of that civilization always end up on the bottom of the ladder? Uh, we have always been, as I uh, repeatedly point out, uh, the race of brotherhood seekers. We have been the one who forever 
and carry on the drive for brotherhood with other people. They have never sought brotherhood with us, never, except for expediency, where they saw an opportunity uh, to play the role of big brother for a while, while they uh, uh, gain con effective control. Now, uh, they're cunning, you see. They study us, and they, they know this. They have, they have certain basic advantages. They can easily win our confidence, first of all, because Africa, the whole continent of Africa, was known as the land of the religious people. Uh, we, we were always, we didn't start the, all this religion in America, you know, being more religious than the whites. No, this is an African characteristic. We were, uh, we were known from ancient times as the land of the spiritual people, the land of the gods, uh, because we were so religious. The blameless people, homeless wrote, uh, we, we were so religious. Uh, so this must be kept in kept in mind in, in this general, general appraisal. How significant was the oral historian in the reconstruction of African history? Well, the oral historian was indispensable. If you're going to, uh, if you're going to make a comparative study of history in which you're going to, you're going to compare uh, what had been written, and since it all was written by foreigners, uh, with what the, the Africans themselves had written and the records of their mind and their records and the records of their mind turned out to be <laughs> as as uh, accurate and as uh, unerring in many respects as uh, as uh, what is written in, in, in books. <laughs> transcript, send $2 to Tony Brown Productions, 1501 Broadway, Suite 2014, New York, New York, 10036. Welcome back 
and that was an interview uh, with uh, Tony Brown of uh, related to the destruction of black civilization, uh, one of the major works of uh, Dr. Chancellor Williams. <clears throat> You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, a special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Tuesday, uh, February the 6th. 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week. Franklin, Detroit's own, with the track entitled I've Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You from her first album on Atlantic Records, released in uh, 1967. Today uh, is the 79th anniversary of the birth of Robert DeMarley, uh, better known as Bob Marley. And uh, Bob Marley, of course, uh, is a legend uh, throughout the world. There was, of course, a rare uh, archival audio file that we uh, discovered some time back 
dealing with an interview uh, of Mumia Abu-Jamal with Bob Marley uh, when he was in the city of Philadelphia in 1979 prior to uh, Mumia's arrest and uh, decades-long incarceration. Uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal, one of the more well-known uh, political prisoners inside the United States, has been incarcerated since December of 1981, uh, some 42 or more years. Uh, let's listen uh, to uh, this interview uh, with uh, Bob Marley by Mumia Abu-Jamal in 1979. Here is a piece Mumia Abu-Jamal produced with his interview of Bob Marley. Sunny Isle called Jamaica comes the Rastaman, reggae missionary Bob Marley, one of a growing number of Rastafarians, believers in the divinity of Ethiopian Emperor Haile Selassie, came to Philadelphia recently to talk about his music, his dreams, and Rastafari, a mystic religious community born in Jamaica back in 1930. No reggae artist in the world has attracted the loving accolades of the dreadlocked Marley. Marley is truly a missionary, and his message, one of global black redemption, is contained within the music of Rastafari. But there's an exodus, exodus from Babylon. We are the Babylon, and then the physical exodus to war. So what we really have to say is that we want the black people to unite with one another and deal with it. No, the only way we can unite is to unite about the truth. The truth is that King Solomon and King David is a root. And if we are, we are dealing with roots, we have to deal with from King Solomon and King David time, line of tribe of Judah, you know. So, this is what I know I said. Time for unity, you know. Because we are people, we have something, and we have to deal with it. That's why I said, on that, you know. <laughs> descendants of the Jamaican freedom fighters Maroons who fled the plantations and set up rebel societies in the highlands shunned the technological advances of the West. The West, they say, is Babylon, a land of unmitigated evil, greed, and other unsavory characteristics. They're a tribe of vegetarians eating the fruit and herbs of the earth, not the meat of animal life. They see themselves as natural mystics with a message for black people the world over. The music is hard, gutsy, bassy, and sprinkled liberally with a message. The unity of the globe's black peoples around the Rastafari. Rastafari was the name of Haile Selassie before he was coronated emperor of Ethiopia. When I come here, I want, I really desire for really get through to the people. I don't want to come here for joke. Yeah. When I come here, when I leave, I want the people them dreadlock. I say them a Rasta and get the thing rebellious. That. 
can't leave, you know, because we can't continue going at the same thing over and over and over and over again. But it's true. Rasta for the people. Rasta for the people. See? Capitalism and communism are finished. The Rasta now. The black man, we have life. That's what we are saying, Ajay. We are saying, give the black man theme we are life now. Make him sure your whole government run and all people care for people. We think of the love. We sing the tune them in the church. The black people are singing them in the Who is the spiritual people on earth? The black people. They are dealing with God. And God not let them down. God did it. And God said them to unite. Because when you unite, that is the power of God. That you care. is militant, its beat moving, its message just is moving. Survival lurks at the heart of the Rasta message. Survival with little or no money. Survival with a supportive community, which only means survival with the spirit of love. Okay, you know, it's a survival of our black people in Rasta, which are gonna make the other people survive too. Guys, a black man will survive, no one can survive. Learn that, and yet we don't make no weapon. But it's just that if we can survive, nobody else will <laughs> to Rasta. So when I come America, I said, Think the Madrid man, it made my heart feel strong. Yes. To stand up for your right. Yeah. Get up, stand up. Yeah. Yeah. Stand up for your right. A bit of history now. During the 1920s, Marcus Garvey's Back to Africa philosophy affected much of the thinking of the African diaspora of the Western Hemisphere. Nowhere was he more influential than in Jamaica, his island homeland. In one of his speeches, Garvey already revered as a prophet in Jamaica said, Look to Africa when a black king shall be crowned, for the day of deliverance is near. 1930 witnessed the splendorous coronation of Rastafari, an Ethiopian baron, as the Emperor Haile Selassie, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, conquering lion of the tribe of Judah. 
Selassie was a direct descendant of David in a line of Ethiopian kings stretching in unbroken succession from the time of Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. This event sent many religious Jamaicans to their Bibles, where they found support for this in Revelations, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and many other books. Before long, religious leaders on the island were saying that Garvey's prophecy has been fulfilled and preached to the people to consider Haile Selassie the living God and call themselves Rastafari's in his honor. You've heard the story of one Rastaman, Bob Marley, whose message, in essence, is a message of Rasta. That's survival. Bob Marley in Philadelphia. This is Mumia Abu-Jamal reporting for Uhuru Sound. Hail Ja Rastafari. Welcome back, and that was Bob Marley being interviewed by Mumia Abu-Jamal uh, nearly 45 years ago in 1979 in Philadelphia. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Tuesday, February the 6th, uh, the 79th birthday, uh, heavenly birthday of uh, Bob Marley, uh, who was born in 1945 on this day in Jamaica. Uh, right now, we want to listen to an interview uh, with uh, the host of uh, the longtime uh, television show in New York City, Like It Is. Uh, let's listen uh, to uh, this interview with uh, Bob Marley from 1980. Pleased to have you as a guest on Like It Is. Thank you. How did it all start? Had music always been a part of your life from when you were a little boy? Yeah, you know, growing up musical family, grandfather, mother, uncle, sister, pit, and everything. <laughs> <laughs> what part of Jamaica? Um, St. Anne's, you know. Yeah? It's in the country. What town? Uh, a town called Rodnard. It's not well known, you know. It's a, a little place up in the hills, you know. Yeah. Um, how big is your family? Well, my family is really big family, you know, Malcolm. The family name is Malcolm. There's a plenty. That's a good name. Yeah. <laughs> when did you begin to get involved in music, really? About well, 19, well, 19, about 1958. Doing what? Well, I was interested in music. But that time I was learning trade, you know, and meet up some guys who can sing. One named Desmond Decker. And so we started out from kind of rehearse together and thing, you know. And then one day we went away, did some recording. Then I fell after. Mm -hmm. You weren't doing the same kind of things then that you're doing now. What kind of music was it in the beginning? Uh, that music was ska. Ska. Ska music, yeah. Well, how does ska differ from, from reggae? Yeah, it's different, different in sound, different in style, different playing, you know. Sky is a more quicker music mm -hmm. than reggae. No relation? Yeah, it's almost the same music breakdown, but more slower, you know. Uh -huh. Same route? Yeah. Uh -huh. It's almost the same music, scare. But only say now, if it was playing at, um, at 33, it started playing at 7 and a half, you know. It's it more. That's a good analogy. Uh, how how does 
reggae and ska come out of Calypso? Many people ask that. Yeah, because the Calypso was always there first. Right. You know? And then now, uh, when the musicians in Jamaica started to play, a lot of them can play Calypso too, because they play a lot of Calypso. Mm -hmm. But because uh, the American influence music come past you down there, you know, them start to kind of get more to, them time you start fat domino. Yeah. And plenty of them type of people. So after a while now, the music start just from the reggae. See, it used to be a, a music almost like a, like a half blues. And used to play before mm. the sketch start, you know. Even people like Joe X. You know that music? Right. Used to play that plenty. Uh -huh. So um, from there now it developed to people start ching, 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 for ska, you know. And then for um, rock studies, like jeng, 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 for reggae noise, jeng, 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 you know. So you have three different fields. But the three of them can put together again and make one thing still. Now, Calypso music, most of it, dealt with family and folk stories and love and beautiful island in the sun, things yeah. like that. How did it move into what we're getting in the music now where we have message? Because during that time of this um, Calypso and um, thing, people never wasn't so conscious about Africa and where them roots come from. Mm. Since the reggae come now, people get, I mean, not from a point of music because music is always conscious. But since the reggae come now, the reggae start talking about Africa, blackness, you know, in a militant way. So that is how it kind of, that is how the lyrics differ from the oil and in the sun. Well, who are some of your influences? Well, I think my biggest influence is Marcus Garvey, I'll say. Yeah. Sure. From uh, what you heard coming up as a boy about Garvey, or what you've learned now that you're grown, or what? Um, what to hear, what to read, you know, and what to, what to know, know about him. Did you learn much about Garvey in school? In no, no. Yeah. Yes, them don't teach. It's education that we don't get in school, you know. We don't get that type of education that when we grow up we can know who we is. Mm -hmm. We get a more education that we might know who Christopher Columbus is, how Marco Polo is, you know. But we never really know who Marcus Gabby is, who Ellis Lassie is, how any black man is. Were you born as a Rasta? How did that evolve? Well, where I figured no, I was born, you know, and then born and uh, growing. There was a certain amount of consciousness in myself that, you know, it was always a lonely world, not finding people who might think like me, you know. Yeah. Not, 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 not to say that I think so different, but because this consciousness about God and the people I come from is more Christian, you know. We always try to do, like, try to stand up not right. But what we used to find out now that one church quarreling against the next church and 
I figure I never want any of that, you know. I never want really intend anything where this one a fight against that one and everybody talking about God still. So after going on and going on and coming up, you know, the the, the thing that was there get more stronger, come to Kingston, meet some more people, them people is Rasta. They talk to them and find out it's the same thing we have inside. It's the same thing. How old were you when this started to happen? This is about 17, 18, you know. Uh-huh. I find out that the same thing where I deal with, the same thing where the Rasta man talk about. So that is how I could identify myself as a Rasta by no. not changing, you know. Now what happened when you went back home and told your, your family what you had found? Oh, I never have a home to go back to. No? No. Where we from? Everybody gone, you know. Uh-huh. Everybody gone. Everybody living in America, some living in Kingston, everybody gone. So, never really have a home not that much, although we used to have a home before grandfather died, you know. But after grandfather died, everything get crashed. So, I know so you know. came to Kingston and that's where it began to happen? Yeah. Where did you live in Kingston? What part? Um, east, I've got it, East Kingston. Mm-hmm. Out in the east. Yeah. And then we go up, up a place named Oxford Street, you know, down to Spanish Stone Road, down to Trent, then up to Trenchtown. Yes. So for a long time, things were kind of lean. Well, yes, things was kind of lean as can. It leads to what is your expectation and you do, you know. To me, it was it was lean, but I could understand it because coming from a country where you learn to do things like you don't learn to depend on family and all of that, you know. You go out and you plant your own corn and you watch the corn grow. When corn grow, you pick your own corn, you know what I mean? Yeah. All of them fruits from them tree, you can get them, you know. So... It's a little different, though, in town. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you've got to do different things to eat, eh? <laughs> well, when you're in a city, it's a whole different ball game, you know? Right. People have to go to work, catch the bus. You know, the country, all the day, you go for the donkey, and you ride the donkey to the farm, and you're cool, you know? Right. In other city, people also catch the bus, go to work, get a come back home, you know? There was a different thing up there. I know a little bit about Jamaica, and I understand in Kingston, Trenchtown is a rough part of town. How did you survive? Well, while living in Trenchtown, you know, um, as a young man, surviving was easy. The only thing you'd have to really look out for was the police, you know. Got the police could just get you, free you, you go to prison, and because you come from Trenchtown, you know, Trenchtown's up. From them say, where you from? It's a Trenchtown. You're gone. You know, <laughs> you get shipped out. You know, a lot of people are confused about what a Rasta really is and have a very negative image of the Rasta. Tell us what a Rasta is. See, Christ promised that he will return within 2,000 years. You know, mm-hmm. and he said, when he come, he will be the king of kings, the lord of lords, the conquering land of Judah through the lineage of King Solomon and King David. Now, my life has great meaning to me. So I really search to find out if God is here. When I search, 
I look, I look in Ethiopia. I look all about, look in Germany, you know, because I'm not prejudiced. I look for God. I look in Ethiopia, I see one man stand up with these names. Emperor Eli last day. Name King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Conqueror Lion of Judah, through the lineage of King Solomon and King David, written in the Bible. Now, one of my things is that um, the Bible, them say that King James edit the Bible. Now, my understanding is that if King James edit the Bible, I don't think he will edit it for the benefit of black people. So when the revelation turned out that Isla Selassie is the king of kings and the lord of lords, coming straight through the lineage of King Solomon and King David, then you know, we really know that this is the Christ's return. Because we know in this world, yeah, when the white man, when the white man edited him, wouldn't edit it in our behalf. You know, in the more edited to make it look like England going to be the, the big, big thing. But in the last days, they'll prove out that is is Ethiopia, Isla Selassie, you know. And Isla Selassie's name is Rasta. So we are called Rasta, you know, called by his name. Uh-huh. And then, it's a lot of things. We go as far as saying, him say, when I return and you call upon him, now this is God, him say, when I return and you call upon him, your mother and your father will forsake you. Now, we know that if you call upon the Catholics, you, you, they will embrace you. You call upon the church of God, they embrace you. Any religion you call upon, you might get embraced. The only religion they push you off from is, is Rasta. But that just make the truth more, more real because say, when you call upon my name, your mother and your father will forsake you. And that is why today you hear Rasta gets so much bad name. It's not because Rasta did anything bad, but it's because all the prophets go with it. When you, if, if your mother and your father will forsake you, just imagine people who don't even know you, you know what I mean? Well, in most religions, uh, you go to church on Sunday, and you may go to a Bible class once or twice during the week, True. and that's it. Yeah. Is it pretty much basically the same in Rasta, or is it more involved? No, we say no. We say that the man is a church. Uh, the Bible is there. But what we find out now is that a lot of people read the Bible, but they don't understand the Bible because the approach to the Bible is wrong. I mean, there's no way you can read a book. You just take up a book and just read it in the middle and figure you can find out what was happening from the beginning to the middle. The, the, the Bible is a whole book with a, with a whole tradition in it. And from them read to Genesis to Revelation, the whole truth of the whole straight road with the overstanding is there, you know. So it's not necessarily then we just go um, go church and do like the other Christian. We know that the man is a church, you know. Because see, you just can't overthrow the truth, you know. We, our people, our roots, when we search for it, we find it in a rasta. Because we don't see, there's no other way, we don't see no other way. It's rasta, we find the roots, you know. You know? How do you handle fame? I handle fame by not being famous. Come on, you know you're a famous man. No, I mean, you know, not to me. No? Not famous to me. <laughs> Some people get drunk off of fame. See, I learned, I learned from, from <coughs> he was coming in, from I just started music, you know, 
the people them want me. Them show me say, hey, this game is a game where if you don't mind sharp, you lose your consciousness. So the only way you can lose your consciousness is because if you figure say you're, you're getting some people say rare, you might your head might get swell. Right. And if your head swell, that's it. So you know, really don't keep my head in a bandage that it can't swell. <laughs> <laughs> How do you handle the women that come at you in droves? I people have visions of women beating down the door to get at Bob Marley and <laughs> grabbing clothes. <laughs> Is it like that? No. 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 Woman easy, you know. <laughs> Is it difficult though to keep your balance and not, you know, get to feeling that you're more important than you really are when so many people are after you all the time for different things? No, you see, I don't think, I, I never really check myself, you know, I really, I know I am benefit to the people, you know, that's the only consciousness I have on myself, that I can be beneficial to a people, you know, and when I really, when I don't know anything else, I don't know that. What do you think it is that has made Bob Marley such a big name? I think, you know, maybe it's just what Bob Marley stands for. What is that? The truth. And the determination to stay alive and survive. You know? You have a record out called Survival. Yeah. That was last year. Yeah. Was anything, did anything happen to you that caused you to write that? Well, 1976, I'm shooting off of me, right? Yes. And I figured that was survival, you know? Yeah. What happened when you were shot? You were in your home. Yeah. Was it in the morning or at night or what happened? Well, it was about, um, that's about 9 o'clock in the night. Yeah. What happened is that um, the night before, about three nights before that, I, I was living at a place called Bulby, you know? Mm. And I went to about 3 o'clock in the morning and get a, and get some sleep. And then I vision I was in a lot of gunshots, you know? That was, that was a, a dream. I was in a, a, a barrage, a gunshot, and... But when, when, when it all over, you know, it's like I never really get no shot. But I see my mother get shot. You know, the vision show my mother get shot in her head. And what happened is that the vision said, don't run. You know, it's like, do you know that this gunshot is like something that the vision said, don't run, stand up. So when the gunshot started firing a hope road, the first thing come back to my mind was the vision. And all I could remember is that the vision said, don't run. And so me that stand up, you know. And, you know, them fire fire until was a tired for fire and then two is, is, is not really a laughable gun battle. Man starts running and it's ease up, you know. And that Where were you hit? Eh? Where were you hit? Me? Yes, sir. Yeah. Went right through? What just No, I'm said large inside there. Yeah? Yeah. You never saw the gunman? Well, at that time, no. But you know who did it? Yeah, I know him. 
Were they caught? No, by the court of police. Mm. It's just, you know, quarantine. You have a record company now? Yeah. Why? Oh, you know, a long time we always have a record company. What we have now is a recording studio. When we go into the studio to work, it was a lot of hassle. I mean, we're a raster, you know. Some people don't want to rust in them studio. You know, if you stop all of this, you have to make one. Because, you know what I mean? A man might say, don't you say, I'll slash your God. Well, you know what I mean? Go and build your own studio. You know what I mean? So, all right, I'll slash his God, I'm going to build a studio, you know? <laughs> so, you know what I mean? I just said, go. Just, is it them things come through sabotage and through pressure? If everything was nice, maybe we wouldn't have to be in a studio. But, you know, it's just a tricky place. It's not everyone really have that humanitarian feeling. Some people just are dealing with them. They don't know what I'm dealing with. Mm. What's ahead for Bob Marley? Do you know? Do you have an agenda or a master plan? Well, I feel ahead for and I is the unity of Africa. And then when the unity of Africa comes, then people will really understand, say, you know, there was something in this thing. Ah, there is something in it. Do you think of yourself more as an African than a Jamaican? Yeah. Because one of the main things is that we're Rasta. From you accept Rasta, you become a Ethiopian, which is Africa. Next thing again, the history of Jamaica shows that the Arawak Indian was living there and it belonged to the Arawak Indian. Now, our history show that through slave business, black people come out of the West and thing, you know? So we still figure, say, Africa is a route, you know? And this is where we should turn to. What do you see as most of uh, Africa's problems as far as uniting? I mean, I see Africa's problem is that outside people keep on fatiguing the people, you know, and make them can't really get them things together. You know, if it's not this superpower, it's that superpower. But Africa is only a place which part of the sex flight. You know, nobody not really. Africa, Africa so rich that it, it become. A man just going to Africa, steal out where he wants to steal and carry back in a thin country. And Africa stayed alive. You know? We're Africa ready. Af uh, Garvey used to say Africa for the Africans. Is that how you feel? Yeah, Africa for Africans, a woman abroad, you know? Sure. <laughs> will, your, will your home base, though, always be Jamaica? Or someday do you, would, no, would you like to live in Africa? No, be in Africa. Yeah. Maybe we open at Jerusalem. You know what I mean? Then Bible on. And what do you think lies ahead for Jamaica? I think what lies ahead for Jamaica is that Jamaica is a beautiful island. The best thing Jamaica could have been is just like how Jamaica, like how England owned Jamaica. Jamaica must make some part of Africa own Jamaica. You know what I mean? And it worked more nicer. I mean, you know. But if, if it's going to be a thing which by you we always have a, going to have a war. Because the only solution is either them get themselves with Nigeria or with someone, you know what I mean? But make Jamaica become 
some African, something to do with Africa, that Africa, who in Jamaica, you know? But because the people and them Wolipa uh, uh, ideology and philosophy with them want to come with, you know, some people want to be Marxist, some want to be this, some want to be that. And nobody would want, and plenty of people don't want to be with them is, and with them is it's African. And Africa have its own culture, and its own people, and you know, all it needs is people who keep it down for either die out of the earth or something. What is your uh, feeling about the condition of black people here in the United States? I feel like black people shall develop themselves, you know, not in a, not not to several then this developing up itself having a prejudice thing to it. It's just that we are people with our own history and culture. We can educate ourselves. I mean, we are the first creators. So we have to really, everything we see on this earth here, yeah, the black man make it. And, I, and I'm saying that the white man don't make some, but all wisdom comes from the black man. You know, a lot of young viewers look up to you and are going to want to hang on every word and every syllable. Do you have a message for young people? Well, you know, the whole thing again is to really check out the truth of Rasta and don't make like fallism, don't make it check it out. And don't get too busy that you can't check out the truth. Because the truth is there. And Africa always its creators. And we know that the people in the West, Edwise, them ready, you know. Them have to learn, come learn. What them learn in the West, them have to care to them, to them people, make it be a benefit to the people. Because I mean, how long must the black people suffer? And these are people, you know? And then we have our own culture. We have everything. We don't shout at anything. We have everything. Plus, we have a land that no one is living there. And we must go home to it. And when you go home, you can build all of these big buildings if you want. I mean, if you miss a city, build a city. You know what I mean? If you want a car, you can get a car. I mean, I don't see, I don't see, I don't see the big thing. One time America was, was, you know what I mean, maybe used to have lots of all, 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 where I call it, all sort of thing I walk through. Africa is a peaceful place. Then we want to fool black people, boys, that jungle and blah, blah, boom, boom. Where have you been in Africa besides Ethiopia? Zimbabwe. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Gabon. How did Zimbabwe strike you? Well, you know, Zimbabwe nice, man. Zimbabwe really nice. I mean, you know, it's like a paradise in a, in a, in a, in a, in a place. You know, when you go in and see it, beautiful. How did the people react to you? People's great. Yeah. People good. You know, them places, when you go and you see how the people and how the land set up, you see people living. You see, I'm on a mouse on a nice pizza. And then the whole thing about it, the climate, you can go out all the while. <laughs> you know what I mean? The climate, nice outside. Yeah. If you want to look upon a few lions and things, you can walk and go. And if you want to see some things that man never make, but it look like somebody make it. That's all Zimbabwe too. Because I go in a place nice to some stone farm. Well, I know it's not the man make it, but the weed farm, you know, 
is, is higher than higher than something. It's really been a pleasant and informative experience talking to you, Brother Marley. Nice. I thank you for your time. I wish you well. And uh, that was an interview uh, with uh, Bob Marley uh, from 1980. And uh, that's going to conclude our program uh, for today. You've been listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Tuesday, February 6, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit on this uh, 79th uh, heavenly birthday for uh, Bob Marley. We're going to close out our program with the music of Bob Marley from the 1979 album Survival. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.
wanted us to be. We are what we are. That's the way it's going to be. If you don't know, you can't educate us or no equal opportunity. 